Uh, if you've ever driven I-35 from here up to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I'm sure you have uh, seen a particular billboard. There are several, several of them along the way, and there might be others, but I know for sure they're on I-35 headed to Dallas. Uh, these billboards really bother me. And um, again, you, you, you might have seen these before, but it asks a question. It says, does advertising work? And then right under that, it says, just did. And for whatever reason, those billboards irritate me to my core. Uh, I don't know if it's because I feel like I've fallen prey to the, the schemes and the scams of the marketer, uh, but I hate it every time I notice the sign just as they want me to. Uh, but the truth that is presented there in the sign is, is one that is very simple to understand. If you were to ask someone if they uh, feel like they had been swayed by the billboards or the signs that they see on the highway, their answer would probably be, no, I can't recall the last time I noticed a billboard. And yet these uh, signs that say, does advertising work, just did, uh, show us that as we're driving down the highway, we are being bombarded with information, and a lot of times we are not even aware of it. Uh, this is true, I think, in the Christian life. As we walk through this life, there is this constant draw from the world, from created things, from sin, to fall in step with worldly ways, and a lot of times we are unaware of this. We are, we are caught off guard to find that we have been swayed by the world, and and the day that we live in, there are so many different avenues and, and ways that we are, our minds are being drawn from here and there. Maybe more than any time in human history, uh, we need to be on guard. First John chapter 2, John says there, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. He goes on later there in chapter 2 to say this, I write these things to you about those who are trying to. To deceive you. And so John is writing to those who possess the truth, and the threat to them is that they will be deceived unknowingly. In John's case, he's talking about false teachers, but in our day, there are endless numbers of things that the world is using and that Satan is using to draw our attention away from worship of the Creator so that we might set our affection and our worship on created things. Here in Genesis 19, there is a charge to the people of God that has carried throughout human history, and that is this, do not love the world, for it is passing away. When we think of our love of the world and our love of created things rather than the creator, we go back to the very garden and we see that sin is the culprit. And so as we walk through Genesis 19 this morning, I want us to consider several things that we come to see and know about sin. The first one is this. The depths of sin are great. If you'll follow along with me, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 19, it says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, 
both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they were themselves out groping for the door. Again, we see here the depths of depravity, the depths of sin are great. This portion of the passage, these first 11 verses, uh, highlights a couple of things for us. First, it highlights and authenticates the wickedness of the city. Uh, the rumors that we have heard, the information, the hints to the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah are on full display for us here. It doesn't take a theologian to know that what we just read in these first 11 verses is, for lack of a better term, gross. And so we think all the way back to Genesis chapter 13 where Lot and Abraham parted ways and, and Lot pitched his tent outside of Sodom. And there the writer told us the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Last week, we considered how the Lord was right in judging Sodom and Gomorrah, as he's about to do here in chapter 19, because the cry of their sin was great before the Lord. And God, having a firsthand account of what was true and clear, we know that Sodom and Gomorrah is a wicked and sinful place, in particular, this city of, of Sodom. We get a first-hand account of it here. This is the only time in Scripture that we see a story of something happening inside the walls of Sodom. And it is a story of sin and wickedness. These two angels that had dined with the Lord and Abraham at his tent just a chapter ago have come to Sodom. And Lot invites them into his home to eat with them. And then we see the entire city shows up at Lot's doorstep because they want to have sexual relations with these angels. And Lot, in an attempt to squelch the situation and the problem that has arisen, then offers his two daughters to them for this act. And so we see here that it is clear and true that this is a wicked city just in this one story that we come to know inside the walls of Sodom. And so we come to see again that God is just to do what he's about to do in destroying the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and everything therein. The valley, this is a wicked place, full of wicked people. But there's something else here that the writer highlights in these first 11 verses. Not only do we see the depths of depravity that have taken hold of the city, but we see the depths of depravity that have manifested themselves in Lot. We see that the wickedness of the city has corrupted Lot. Lot's family has become comfortable inside the walls of Sodom, and they have been swayed by its wickedness. There's two primary ways here in the passage that we see that Lot 
has given in and is comfortable there in the walls of Sodom. First, at the very beginning in in verse 1, we see that he's sitting at the gate of Sodom. This would have been a place of, 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 of high position and high authority in the city. He would have been entrusted with this position. We also consider, as we've walked through the story of Abraham, how often the writer has highlighted the location of Abraham and the location of Lot. We saw Lot early in the story pitch his tent outside the walls of Sodom, and then the writer very deliberately tells us later that Lot was inside the walls of Sodom. But where has Abraham remained during this time? Well, back in chapter 18, verse 1, we saw there for the third time in the story of Abraham that he was still there by the oaks of Mamre. Again, the writer highlighting this one who is walking by faith, Abraham, and one who appears to be walking more by sight in Lot. He is comfortable. He is complacent there inside the walls of Sodom. But the primary way that we see the depths of depravity taking hold of Lot's life is in what he does in offering up his two daughters to the people of the city for this this grievous act there are some righteous standards that we see in lot here he greets these two angels by bowing down to them he brings them into their his home he feeds them but then we we come to verse 8 and he says i have two daughters who have not known any man and we think to ourselves something is not right here something is wrong with lot we see him doing the unthinkable, offering up his two daughters to the people of the city for this atrocious act. When we become complacent with sin, when we become comfortable with sin, it will fester and grow into something far more than we could ever have imagined. Uh, Ravi Zacharias was a theologian apologist who would travel the world for many years and and, and would teach on scripture. He did a lot in apologetics with, uh, with Muslims and, and trying to uh, convert them to Christianity. There were many helpful things that he did in his teaching, and, and, and especially in regards to Muslim apologetics and, and, and fighting against Islam. And uh, many saw him as a great man of faith, a teacher of the faith. But a few years ago, after his death, it came out that he was living a double life. And it came to be very clear that Ravi Zacharias was living in very uh, deep sexual sin in his life, sexual immorality. And unfortunately in our day, this becomes more and more common for us to hear of pastors who are falling away into deep, dark sin. And our response is usually twofold. How could that happen to such a godly person? But then in the same breath, we ask the same thing, or we say this, that would never happen to me. Proving that we do not fully understand the depths of depravity and how far sin will take us if we become comfortable and complacent with it. Ravi Zacharias was famous for saying something that is oftentimes attributed to him, but we don't actually know who was the originator of this quote, but he would say this, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. There is great truth to that quote. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. If only Ravi Zacharias would have heeded the warning of the quote that he used so often. 
Lot, inside the walls of Sodom, was comfortable with the sin that surrounded him, and it led him into the depths of sin. It is good for us as Christians from time to time to stop and test ourselves and see if we have become comfortable with sin in our own lives. Uh, This is something we should do every time we come to the Lord's Supper, to stop and, and see if there be any grievous way in us and confess that to the Lord and repent. And we have an opportunity this morning, church, to pause for a moment in this place and ask ourselves if we have become comfortable with sin in our own lives. Laziness. Pride that has set into our hearts and minds, fearful thoughts or anxious thoughts that are festering and we allow to to build up in our minds. Sinful habits lingering over sinful things, inappropriate things, associating with people that are uh, causing us to look more like the world than, than Christ, lying about small things, whatever it is, have you become comfortable with sin? The call of the text this morning is to kill sin in all of its forms. Put it to death. Do not become comfortable inside the walls of Sodom and complacent with your sin. Confess it today. Repent of it today. Kill it today. The second thing that we come to know of sin in this passage is that the allure of sin is powerful. We pick up the story there in verse 12. It says, The men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servants have found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me, and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. 
what the Lord does here in these verses that we have felt building up since chapter 13, this destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, is right. And we know this again because of the outcry of its sin. You see there in verse 13, the angels again highlight what we already talked about last week. The outcry against the people has been great before the Lord. And so these angels have arrived on the scene to serve the justice of God, to execute the justice of God on the city. And this destruction of this city is real. One commentator said this, it is a catastrophe that actually happened. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is not a story that Israelite moms and dads made up to correct their children's behavior. These are two real cities in a real valley that really existed in a time thousands of years ago that came under the full wrath of God. And we see this there in the fire and brimstone, or as my translation says, sulfur and fire that comes from the Lord out of heaven. This was unmistakably a divine act. God had poured out his wrath on this valley. So any bystander who came up on the scene after the fact, there would have been no doubt in their mind that the Lord had done this. It was catastrophic in scale. This was not just a house fire that spread throughout a village or a wildfire. This was from the Lord. Everything that was associated with the evil in this region, in this valley, was destroyed. Just as we saw at the flood. Unlike Noah, though, who was able to encourage all of his family to enter the ark with him, Lot has trouble getting all of his family to leave the city. In fact, there in verse 14, when he pleads with his sons-in-laws, it appears in the text that he wasn't genuinely concerned about it. And so he is there trying to convince his family to leave the city. And what is most shocking about Genesis 19 is not that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That is most certainly shocking. But the account of the destruction of the cities is only verses 24 and 25. Most all of chapter 19 is about Lot and his part in the story. And as we've followed the story of Genesis, we should not be surprised at this point that God would serve his judgment on the wicked. We saw it at the flood. We saw it at the Tower of Babel. And so as a reader, we come to this point and we are not surprised that the wicked would perish, but what is potentially most shocking about the passage is what we see at the beginning of verse 16. Lot lingered. He had assimilated to Sodom, he and his family. And so the angels literally have to drag them out of the city. And the text tells us in verse 16 that this was an act of God's mercy. The Lord being merciful to him And brought him out and set him outside the city. This is a picture of the gospel. That we are bound up inside the walls of sin and death. And we do not seek after God. We do not seek after righteousness. We have assimilated to the ways of sin and death. And yet God reaches into the walls of the city. And he pulls us out by his great mercy. And he sets our feet on a solid rock who is Christ. This is a picture of God's great mercy that we see in the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and he reaches into the miry pit of sin and death, and by his mercy and by his grace, he delivers us by the blood of Christ. Something else we come to see here in this portion of the story is that Lot 
was on Abraham's mind in chapter 18 when he petitioned the Lord, when he interceded before the Lord on behalf of the righteous. So you remember last week, chapter 18, uh, there in verse 25, he says, Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are there? And so he's interceding on behalf of the righteous. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. And so the text affirms that here in verse 29, that, that the Lord has answered Abraham's prayer in delivering Lot. But this brings up a tension in the story that we have to address here. What do we do with Lot? Is he righteous? We, we talked about last week that the Lord will deliver the righteous and show mercy to the righteous, but the wicked will perish. Is Lot righteous? Well, over in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter has something to say about this that helps us understand a little bit of what we are seeing here with Lot. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, listen to what Peter says about Lot. If he, Lot, or sorry, if he, God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked... For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. I don't know about you, but there's not much in Genesis chapter 19 that lends itself for us to believe that Lot was righteous or that he was, as Peter said, distressed and tormented by the sin of the city. And yet twice here in verses 7 and 8, he calls Lot righteous. What are we seeing here? Well, back in Genesis 19, verse 29, we find the answer. It says, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. When it says God remembered Abraham first, we, as we just affirm, we see here that God answered the prayer of Abraham to deliver the righteous and that God would deliver the righteous out of the punishment. But there's also something else we see here in the fact that God remembered Abraham, that God remembered the promise, the covenant that he made with Abraham. And anyone who is in the covenant by faith will be kept by God. And so the only way to answer the question of what do we do with Lot is according to what Peter says to affirm this. Lot was righteous, not by his works, but by his faith. He was a part of the covenant promise because of his faith in Messiah. And so one commentator said this, God's faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant was the deciding factor in Lot's rescue. God rescued Lot because he's faithful to his covenant people. So what do we see here with Lot? Well, we see one who is righteous by faith, but also one who is drinking the milk of the faith, as we see in Hebrews 5. He is not feasting on the word of God as meat. He is still drinking milk, and he is still complacent and living according to the ways of man. And so we should be shocked by what happens at Sodom and Gomorrah. But we should also be shocked at how hard it is for Lot and his family to get the worldview of Sodom out of their home. We are prone to let Sodom and Gomorrah shape our minds and our worldview 
and not the word of God. Something I am very passionate about, and one of the reasons that I sense God calling us back from the mission field to pastor, is a desire I have to call the church today out of worldliness. To come out of the ways of the world and stop allowing the world to influence who we are and what we do and to stand in the word of God alone. Too much in our day, Christians in our land are living according to the ways of man and they are not even aware that they have been influenced by the world. We see this in our theology as the American church. Uh, just last year, a survey was done of evangelical Christians, and in this survey, one of the things they found is that 56% of evangelicals, 56% of people in America who profess faith in Christ believe that God affirms all world religions. 56% of evangelicals, that every religion leads to heaven. They, they affirm this. This is the mindset of the world, that we can coexist, that we can all have our own truth. And so you hear people in the church saying, well, well the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe in Jesus, so they're good. Just a side note, the Muslims also believe in Jesus. The problem with the Jesus of Islam and Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses is this, is that he is not the Jesus of the Bible. We believe in this God-man, God who came to this earth, God in human form who lived a sinless life and died on a cross and rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, is a coming again, is King of kings and Lord of lords. And any view of any Jesus outside of that is not the Jesus of the Bible. We see this in our practice in our day, where we use the lingo of the world in a Christianese type of way. And so we take the phrases that the world loves to use, like be true to yourself or follow your heart, and we attach God to it in a five-second soundbite on, on Instagram or Facebook or whatever other social media people are using these days, and we affirm it as true. And so we say God wants us to be true to ourselves. God wants us to follow our hearts. And because the word God is used, we amen, we like it, we affirm it without considering what does God's word say. We see this as how we talk about racism as the church. That as racism exists in our world, we want to talk about it as evangelicals in the world's terms, with the world's ideologies, with the world's standards, instead of trusting that God's word alone is sufficient for us to deal with the problem of racism. We should talk about the issues of our day from Scripture's terms alone. And so there's, there are evangelicals today who would say that it is racist for you to suggest that the gospel is the answer to the problem of racism. That is where we've come to, church. We see this in how we parent. We use secular methodologies to parent instead of resting in the sufficiency of God's word and how we are to raise our children. But most importantly here, we see this in our participation in sin. Just an example of this, I, I see over and over again young evangelical Christians, couples who are living together before they are married, who have no idea that this lifestyle is not pleasing to God because the world is shaping their view, not God's word. 
And so like Lot, we're bothered with the sin that surrounds us, as Peter talked about, or, uh, yeah, as, as Peter talked about there in, in, in 2 Peter. Lot was bothered by what he saw, but we also, as Lot did, respond by joining in with the sin ourselves. What is the answer for the problem? The answer is this. Stop letting the world disciple you, church. Stop letting the world teach you theology. Young people, stop letting soundbite theology, flash-in-the-pan theology that you see in a 10-second clip on TikTok disciple you. Read the Word. Participate in the life of the church. Sit under the sound teaching of the Word of God. Let this shape your worldview. Let this shape how you live in this world. Not the sound of men. Read the word. Swim in the word. We also need to be careful of who we allow to influence our thoughts. There are some solid political commentators in our day that are very helpful in the conversation of how do we fight against liberalism and fight against all of these crazy things that we see being promoted in our world. And, and these men uh, do a good job in, in that conversation of fighting against those things, but there, there are some of them who openly confess that they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They are openly anti-Christ. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't listen to them or find helpful things from them? No, that's not what I'm saying, but hear this. We need to be careful not to let these political commentators who openly confess to be anti-Christ shape our thoughts. Maybe it's a, it's a mommy blogger that, that you as a mom read who has really helpful things to offer of how to organize your home and teach your kids, but she's a Mormon. How much do you allow that person to influence your mind, dear brothers and sisters, test yourselves by the scriptures alone. Let God's word alone shape your mind, your affections, your attitudes, your thoughts, your worldview. As Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you want to know what God's will is today? Do you want to know what's good and acceptable and perfect in this life and in all of life and godliness? It's found in the pages of Scripture. Come to the Word, dear friends. Swim in the Word. Do not be conformed to this world. The last and final thing that we see here about sin is that the effects of sin are real. We conclude the story there in verse 30. It says, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave, very ironic, that's where they wanted him to go first time, with his two daughters. Verse 31, And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring for our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that he may preserve offspring for our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. 
And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Not only do we see the effects of sin are real and the destruction of verses 24 and 25 where the judgment of God, the real and righteous judgment of God falls on this city of people pointing us to a judgment that is to come in the end when Christ returns and, and anyone who stands opposed to Christ will come under this real wrath of God and, and, and we do not need angels to tell us this. The word of God makes this clear to us. There are consequences for our sin, and ultimately, when we come to the end of our days, we will have to answer for our sin. But we also see the consequences of sin and the complacency of this family that continues to manifest itself in their home after the destruction. And so very reminiscent of Noah and his family after the flood, where the the three sons are interacting there with their father Noah, who is drunk, and one of them acts inappropriately with Noah. Here we have two two daughters who act inappropriately with their father, who is also drunk. In both of these cases, we see a family falling into the very form of sin that had just been judged. And so when we read in verse 36 that both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father— We're shocked at this. It doesn't take a theologian for us to understand that this is wrong. And the text doesn't explicitly say here that this was wrong, but the context of Scripture tells us it is. A child reading that verse knows that that is not right. This is what happens to a family that is engulfed by the ways of the world. One commentator said this, even after the destruction of Sodom, the mentality of Sodom remained in Lot's home. The immediate effects, consequences of their sin are the Moabites and Ammonites. Now, there, there is a positive view to this, which is right, that, uh, that the Moabites and the Ammonites are an act of God's mercy. So there in verse 16, when God was merciful and delivered Lot, here we have the birth of two nations, two tribes that will one day be represented around the throne of God, but we also see a negative consequence here in that the Moabites and Ammonites are the perennial enemies of Israel. And so when the original audience read this, they would have known full well that it was Lot's complacency that they were still suffering the consequences of in their day. As we mentioned several weeks ago, there are consequences for our sin. And when we set our minds on earthly things, we will reap earthly things. Jesus said in Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. And the reason he said that was not just because she disobeyed the command of the angel. So there in verse 17, the angel, with a word from the Lord, says, do not look back. And so later she looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. We all know this part of the story. And she most certainly turned to a pillar of salt because she disobeyed the command. But what Jesus highlights there in Luke 17 is this, is that her heart was set on Sodom. Her affections were set on Sodom, and she goes nameless in the word of God. Dear friends, the time is short. Christ is coming again. How are you living today 
in view of his turn. Have you set your mind on earthly things or have you set your affection on eternal things? I want to close by reading a couple passages. First, I want to go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul goes on to say they're put to death all of these sinful things, sexual immorality, impurity. Put them all away, he says. Do not lie. Do not do these things. And then he goes on to say put on then the things of God, compassion, kindness, humility, love, peace, thankfulness. He says let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. The last place I want to go is 1 John chapter 2. And I simply want to close by reading verses 15 through 17 as we consider the the charge of Genesis 19 today, to not love the world for it is passing away. Listen to what John says here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. And just as we read in Hebrews, friends, don't harden your heart to what you're about to read. Heed the words of of scripture don't let this just be noise right now listen to the word of god first john 2 15 do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in this world the desires of the flesh and the desires of eyes and pride and possessions is not from the father but is from the world And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray.